You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. And if you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and find Luke 24 on page 885. And I'm looking at some of your looks and you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were going to be in Isaiah. And we are. But what I wanted to do is provide for us both a reminder of what this book is about, as well as a reminder why we do what we do during Advent season. So Luke 24 is the context of two individuals who declared to be followers of Christ that were heading on a road that was headed to the city of Emmaus. And they were discussing amongst themselves the historical events that had taken place just previously concerning Jesus. And there Jesus was walking with them, but they were not able to recognize him and understand who he was. And so the tool that he used to be able to make them aware of God's story was scripture. Look at verse 27 of Luke 24. It says, beginning with Moses. So these are the first five books of the Old Testament. And then it says, all the prophets. Do you see that in the text? It might be easy for us to run past a three-letter word like all. And yet we're reminded by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture, every word, including the little ones, are God-breathed. And they are intended by God to be profitable. And I submit to you that this phrase with this word, as well as the rest of the verse tell us a very important framework for how we study the Bible. It says at the end of verse 27, he interpreted or he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I know some people look at this verse and believe that what it means is that Jesus essentially walked through all of the messianic passages in scripture, but I think he did more than that. I think he developed through every book of the Old Testament the story that we read when we read God's word. And what he did in unpacking that story is what every great author does, weaves the details of the story to emphasize the central person, the central character, the central point. I think what Jesus was doing and modeling is something that Paul did, that the apostles did, that I think the rest of the authors of scripture did. And what I try to do every Sunday and what we're doing through Advent, and that is showing that every passage of Scripture is intended to point us to the central person who is Christ. And so now as I invite you to turn to Isaiah 25, even though this is an Old Testament passage, was written specifically originally to a Jewish audience, I take that framework and hope through our time together to show you that this is how we are to study God's word. Isaiah 25 is where we camp for our second Advent Sunday, which this Sunday we build on last Sunday's topic. Last Sunday was the topic of hope or expectation, and we defined it as the anticipation of someone or something fulfilling a valuable need. And so I want to highlight for you through a video here in just a minute, I'll explain to you what you're going to see, that I think true anticipation waters the ground for a bumper crop of true joy. 
And so what you're going to see is a little window into the Terrell family and our traditions with Christmas. And this is something we kind of refer to as the Christmas stairs. And what it is is basically parents being uh, difficult for their kids. Making kids sit at the top of the stairs like thoroughbreds ready to race a racetrack, keeping the gate closed. So we take videos and we take pictures and we ask them questions, but you can just see they are, they are anticipating. And I just want to manage expectations. The Terrell family chose to include Santa Claus in our traditions, but as a very distant background to the primary focus, which is the birth of Jesus Christ. So that's the background. Watch the video and I'll explain it in just a moment. Okay, girls, what are we doing? We're um, getting ready to go downstairs to get open up our presents on Jesus' birthday. Yeah, mommy just... Went down to check. She and did she, some reconnaissance. Yeah. And that's what she discovered. Whoa. He came. He came. Oh, he came. So see, he came is like the gate coming down. Like once that gate comes down, the racetrack horse, uh, the, the horse is going to hit the racetrack. So that, that's the, the gate coming down with the phrase he came. And so who the he is, is Santa Claus. And so The girls knew that they could expect because Santa Claus came, because of what they knew about him, what they knew about the history of their Christmases, there was now heightened expectation, heightened anticipation that led to this. All right. Mimi, what is that? It's something Okay. I hope you can see it. there's some unbridled joy there. A lot of rejoicing, and I don't know if you could even make, make sense of the words that were being shared, but there was a lot of excitement and rejoicing. Now, what I want to highlight, though, is that even as a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 4-year-old, there was a reality that they were dealing with. Because their list was more than ripsticks or Theo Stilton books or dollhouses. Their, their list was bigger than that. And they could look over at the Christmas tree and see that there were still uh, wrapped presents. They even knew at that young age that somehow these gifts weren't going to deliver ultimate satisfaction. And yet, they were able to express this amazing joy in the moment. Well, I would submit to you that's what Isaiah 25 provides for us. How can this happen? How can this happen in our life when we are experiencing unmet expectations? How can this happen in a life where there are sorrows? I submit to you the tools are provided for us in Isaiah through four evaluations that if you and I will gather these tools and use them, No matter what your life context is today, was yesterday, or will be tomorrow, you too can truly rejoice. The first evaluation is, number one, you must have the right longing. The right longing. And I direct your attention to verse 9. Because I think the way Isaiah unpacks chapter 25, the the main point is verse 9. 
Now, before we get to this verse, I want to just paint a picture of the where we've been in Isaiah. So some of you are studying Isaiah. I've heard testimonies, and I've studied Isaiah before, and there's some great parts of Isaiah and also some very difficult sections. So what chapters 1 through 12 are is really a compilation of great images of symbolism. You see Isaiah in chapter 6 described the throne room of God, and he uses similar descriptions as John does in Revelation 4 and 5, but slightly different to try to display the majesty and the glory of the God of Israel. We see a a parable in Isaiah 5 of the vine dresser in the vineyard, and that's going to be a theme that will continue on through the story of Scripture that Jesus will ultimately draw to a conclusion in John 15 where he says, I am the true vine. We see historical narrative in Isaiah 7, how King Ahaz is considering the impending attack on Jerusalem and how he responds and how Isaiah helps him. And then we see prophecies, but ultimately those first 12 chapters intend to show the original audience the deplorable spiritual condition of Israel. And so we're, we're left with that as we reach into chapters 13 through 23. And and chapters 13 through 23 are headlined by a recurring phrase, which is an oracle against, and then there's some people group. And what you see in the people groups is really a list of who's who of the enemies of the people of God. You see oracles against Babylon and against Egypt and against Philistia. It's also of note that chapter 22 includes an unexpected people group, perhaps to the original audience, where God declares an oracle of judgment against Jerusalem, God's people. So so this is where we are as we arrive at chapter 25, and it makes us wonder how the people in the original audience could have been called to what he says at the end of verse 9. Look at what he says. Let us be glad and rejoice. So so here's this topic of joy that we're focusing on, on this Advent Sunday. Let us be glad and rejoice. And yet, all 23 chapters leading up to chapters 24 and 25 show us that the context of Israel was not easily cause for joy. You know, we find this in our own lives the call to joy, and yet the circumstances that lead us to the opposite, don't we? But here's what I want you to see in verse 9, a quote that the team will put up on the screen. The people of God long for the presence of God. Friends, if you will take this and this alone away from our study of the topic of joy, you will be in the right position to have joy in all of your circumstances. If you entered this room and in this moment declare yourself to be a member of the people of God, then you are in this place that Isaiah is highlighting where the people of God long for the presence of God, more so even than changed circumstances. And how I see that in the text is verse 9, behold, this is our God. Do you see that in the text? See, see, I'm drawing you to the text so that you actually look at the text. And in doing so, I'm actually equipping you how to study the Bible. You see, you can look at the text and the words that are translated in English here and understand the goal of Isaiah and the Holy Spirit through him. 
What should motivate our longing is a longing for God's presence. We long for our God. We have waited for him. The word wait means to look forward to the occurrence of or the arrival of someone or something. Twice it says here they are waiting. And this is appropriate for us to study in Advent. Remember, Advent means the arrival of. So here the author is drawing the reader of this original prophecy to long for the presence of God. And that's what you saw in the video The girls were longing for the presence, in this case, of Santa Claus. Not ultimately because necessarily what they knew was going to be in the living room, but because they knew about his power. They knew about the history. They they were able to focus on him and his character and attributes, and that moved them to a place of anticipation that then resulted in joy. So here's three tools that I'll show you from verse 9 that will provide a framework not only for our understanding of chapter 25, but our framework for our ability to rejoice in all circumstances. Number one, God's timing. His timing. Look at what it says in verse 9. It will be said on that day. Not the day of our choosing, Not our timing, not, hey, we've put it on the calendar and now God has to show up. It is his timing. It is on that day. And I'll explain to you more what I believe that day is referring to. But then number two, it is his power. This is not a partnership, beloved. When it comes to God fulfilling his plan, he is not dependent upon us. When it comes to salvation that we see right here in the text, it is his salvation and his alone. It is not like God puts faith and repentance out on the table and he's hoping and praying that somehow I will reach out and take it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the salvation of sinners is his power and his power alone. But then number three, his definitions. Notice that it says our salvation, which implies that we need saving. You see, this is the framework. When we can get to a place where we see God, where we see us as he sees it, as he sees himself, as he sees us, and then we define it his way, now we're in a position where no matter what circumstances we face, we can be in a position to be able to rejoice. So verse 9 reminds us that the right longing leads to true rejoicing. Number two, now we're going to back up and march through the text. Right lenses lead to rejoicing. Right lenses lead to rejoicing. Look at verse 1. It says, I will exalt you. This is terms of rejoicing. I will praise your name. These are actions of rejoicing. Again, remember the context Not a whole lot of circumstances that would easily move the reader to exalt or praise God. So how does Isaiah encourage the reader, and by extension us, to exalt in the Lord, to praise his name? Well, that's the next phrase. For you have done wonderful things. The word wonderful translates a word that means to 
have something that causes feelings of wonder that is often miraculous. The, the, Isaiah, the prophet, is saying that there is something that I consider that moves me to a place of moving from where I've been to where I need to be. This is a reality in his life, either that he sees or that he hears, that causes action. I'll try to illustrate it this way. We'll put three pictures up on the screen. These are Instagram posts of places that you can visit. And I know they're kind of small, so I'll explain them to you. The one on the left is the Blue Lagoon in Iceland. Now, a couple things to notice about this. First of all, it is blue. Second of all, the guy in the picture is tremendously ripped in his muscles. And so the implication is that all you need to do is step in this and you will look like him. I also notice that he is in Iceland without a shirt. So the water must be warm. On a day like today, I want to visit that place. Now, now the second picture is the Great Wall in China. And I've always wanted to visit this place. Uh, the, the ingenuity of those uh, historical people is amazing. To put the, the miles together of this pavement and the walls and to do so at the top of a mountain ridge over so many miles is, is worthy, I think, of visiting someday. And then that third picture is the most famous painting in the world. It's the Mona Lisa. Maybe some of us, if not all of us, would value the opportunity to go and take a picture like this. Now, what I'm trying to illustrate is that these pictures, or you can come up with something else, are intended to elicit wonder in us, wonder that moves us from where we are to where we want to be, to where we need to be. It's intended to elicit action within us. And, and what you see here is the importance of lenses because this is reality. Check these pictures out. The Blue Lagoon on the left. Now, I hope you can't see this. It's good that this one's small, but the people are not ripped in their muscles. And there are a lot of them. The, the, the next picture on the Great Wall, the, the pavement is all broken, and there are mass of people. And if you get claustrophobic, that crowd will probably elicit within you some emotions. And then the picture on the far right is an experience that our family got to have this last summer. And that is you walk into this massive room with lots of rows of people all holding up their phones. So it's impossible to get a picture until you get finally up there. And then people are pushing you and you realize Mona Lisa is about this big. The difference is the lenses of expectation, isn't it? And what Isaiah provides for us here are the lenses of true expectation that will lead to joy. Because the audience of Isaiah 25 might have expected that the author would say, you've done wonderful things. I'm already taking care of giving you victory, giving you economic prosperity, making sure that everybody returns to me. But that's not what he says at the end of verse 1. Look at what causes him to have wonder. Plans formed of old. Do you see that in the text? This Hebrew term means a series of steps to be carried out or goals to be accomplished. What I see in this is the author of the most amazing story ever told. As an author of a story, you have to plan out the steps. You have to plan out the characters. You have to plan out the scenes. You have to plan out the arc. And that's what our God has done with redemptive history. 
What causes excitement, what causes wonder, what causes the the foundation of joy for Isaiah is reflecting on the fact that God is in control, that God has ordained all the circumstances, and he does what John does in Revelation right here. Remember, the whole point of the book of Revelation, as I proposed to you, as we've been studying it, is that John is describing symbolically the fact that God is in charge. The fact that every detail from creation to the new Jerusalem has been already written and designed and ordained by God. And there's not one nanosecond of your life that strays from that order. I heard one amen. That is intended in our lives to bring us to a place of joy. Then when we have those lenses and understand that God is faithful and sure, then we can move to understand what's going on in verses 2 through 5. Isaiah describes the city of man, and I draw that imagery from verse 2, for you have made the city, the fortified city, and I think he's playing on this word city to describe a spiritual reality that I'll explain more in a few minutes. But the city of man that he's describing is the world system, just like John has been describing in Revelation. And he's saying it is powerful. It is a city. It is a fortified city. It is a palace. The Hebrew term is elsewhere translated stronghold. Verse 3, the leaders of the world system are strong. Verse 3, they are ruthless. Verse 4, they constantly are are creating storms against God's people. Verse 5, heat against God's people. Verse 5, they are noisy. And all of this is true. And all of this the original audience would have been able to understand. And all of this can't we understand in our 21st century context? The world system is strong. It is aggressive toward the people of God. And then what what Isaiah reveals is that God is a stronghold to the poor, isn't he? Now be careful before you start nodding your heads. Let's make sure we define it the way God defines it. Because there are still poor, aren't there? He's a fortress for the needy, and there still are needy. He's a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, and yet we still experience storms and heat. So what is Isaiah doing? He's taking the lenses of God's character and letting those be what we look through to see our context. And friends, when we do that, I believe we recalibrate to his timing, his power, his definitions, which puts us in a place to rejoice, no matter what our circumstances. Here's the last quote before we move on to evaluation number three. When we see God as he truly is, the people of God rejoice. Not not the God that we create, not a God who's easy for us to wrap our minds around. When, When we define good, we want to make sure we're using his definitions because if we don't, then we ask questions like, how can a good God allow this? But when we recalibrate our definitions to his definition of what good is, to his definition of who he is, then we're in a place where we can rejoice even in difficult circumstances. Now, I'll pause right here and say, I sometimes listen to myself while I preach, and I know that may sound weird, but I think that might have sounded churchy to some of you. Like some of you might look back on this last week and said, Pastor, if you just knew the circumstances of my life, there is no way I can rejoice in the midst of these circumstances. 
All I'm saying to you is the same thing I've been saying to me this past week. Just because we don't feel it, just because we don't naturally do it, doesn't mean it isn't true. And so if we can get back to this place, if we can get back to the right lenses that we see the world through, which are the lenses through God's character, through his power, his timing, his definition, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to apply this well. But we will at least have the tool that we need and the right starting point to be able to get to a place where we can be glad and rejoice. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, you are my God. That's enough for him. I will exalt, I will praise, even if circumstances don't change. Number three, third evaluation, right lifetime leads to rejoicing. Right lifetime leads to rejoicing. The the list of details in verses six through nine are like a, a wish list for the ancient world. Now, we can understand some of it in our modern context, but let me bridge back to the ancient context to help us understand how verse 6 would have been something they all longed for. Verse 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast of rich food. Now, for us as Americans, that probably is not on our wish list. And the reason for that is that just about every meal we eat is a feast for other people throughout the world. About every meal that we eat is a feast for the generations that gone, have gone before us, including Hot Pockets. So for us, it's kind of lost, but let's go back to the original context. In fact, let me give you some verses that I would encourage you to write down. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 10. That's the account of the son of the king, Belshazzar, who gathers together his subjects and puts on a massive feast. Esther 1, 1 through 8, King Ahasuerus brings people together all throughout his kingdom to have a massive feast. In fact, one account in ancient history is the account of a king who boasted that he had a celebration and a feast that hosted 69,000 people. So, so what this means is that the ancient world, whenever a king put on a feast, it was an opportunity for people to celebrate his power, to put his wealth on display. But it was also value for the people who were invited. Let me give you a couple examples of that. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 7 through 11. The crippled son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king, was invited to a feast put on by King David, and Mephibosheth was shocked, amazed, and rejoicing that he was invited. You can write down Esther, chapter 5, and verse 12. A man named Haman was invited to the king's feast, and that changed his whole complexion. He was rejoicing because he was invited. Why? Because in the ancient world, if you were invited to a king's feast, that meant the king had favor upon you. That meant you were one of his. So here we see the people read this and they would have said, yes, we, we want this. This is reason for rejoicing. A feast is going to be put on. And then verse, verse 8 says that the king is going to swallow up death forever. Verse 8 says he will wipe away tears from all faces. We in the modern context, we would want this, wouldn't we? Because there's, there's lots of reasons in this life that generate tears. Unmet expectations, breakups, no ups, 
lost jobs. So many reasons. To have death swallowed up, wouldn't we want that to be part of our lifetime? If you live long enough, you start to see grandparents die. You see parents die. You might see siblings or classmates or coworkers. If, if you've been part of a sin, even this last year, we've had funerals in this room of people that we, we love and were part of our church. Wouldn't it be great in this lifetime if we could have death removed completely? It says the Lord will remove the reproach of his people. We, We long for that. And yet what Isaiah is doing by the way he describes this is illustrated by growing up. I remember that people would ask me, uh, parents, teachers, trying to teach me the time value of money. Would you rather have $1,000 now? Or would you rather let us invest that 50 years later and then you can access it? And as a 10-year-old, $1,000 now, come on, what's the deal? Because I'm already starting to think through how many Star Wars figures can I buy? But then the teacher or the parent would quickly explain that even with a conservative interest rate in 50 years, you're going to have over $20,000. I had a friend come up to me in between the services and said, you know, if you would have kept those Star Wars figures in the packages, (laughs) true, true. But the point is this. It's easy for us as human beings to stay focused on this lifetime, on the here and now. But what Isaiah is using through very intentional phrases and concepts is moving the original audience and us beyond this lifetime. Let me show you in verse 6. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for Israel a feast of rich food. Is that what it says? No, it says for all peoples. Then he says in verse 7, all peoples again. And then he says the veil that is spread over all nations. And at this point, the original audience would have understood, okay, wait, he's talking about something in the future. Because the feast in this day would have been for Israel. Because that was the focus of God with his covenant love. But, But Isaiah is saying there's going to be a time when there will be a celebration of the king that representatives from all people will be present. And then he talks about a veil. And and at this point, the original audience would have only been veiled in their understanding. I use an illustration here at Ascend. So if you're new, let me just explain it to you after I say it. But I say that the Old Testament authors are describing the furniture of redemptive history in a dimly lit room. So, So what we see here is that Isaiah is saying the very same thing that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. He's talking about a veil. The author of Hebrews talks about a veil. But here he's describing it in a very dimly lit room. So he doesn't know all the details. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. But the author of Hebrews does. And he says that when the physical veil of the temple, keeping access to the Holy of Holies reserved for only one man one day of the year was torn through Christ's death, It gave us all access to the presence of God. Then in verse 8, it says he will swallow up death forever. All the original audience had to do is look around them and say, wait, death still exists. So when will this happen? Well, it's a dimly lit room. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 will give us the light that helps us understand how and when death will be swallowed up. Death is swallowed up by the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. What does that mean? That God requires a payment for our sin. 
and that Christ substituted in our place for those who believe the punishment that was required for sin. And through his death, he swallows up death, swallows up sin. And then, as 1 Corinthians 15 continues to unpack, it's through the resurrection of Christ that ultimately death is swallowed up. What a reminder this is for us through this passage that Isaiah is reminding us to focus on the right lifetime, not this one. When is it going to happen? Well, verse 9 says it will be said on that day. I I think that day is the day when Christ returns, like Daniel 7, 13, and 14, like Revelation 1, 7, and he returns as the victor. He returns to set up his eternal kingdom. This is what we've been unpacking in the book of Revelation. And on that day, there will be a symbolic feast. I don't think it's literal feast. I think once again, John is using symbolism, just like Isaiah is using symbolism to say that through something that the original audience would have understood, there will be a day when Christ is the victor, that he demonstrates his ultimate power and authority and his ultimate victory over sin and over the world system and over the dragon. And all of the people that are present in that day will be members of the family of God rejoicing with him. Oh, friends, remember this, that beyond the here and now, even though I know the days are long, even though I know there are tears and there is still death, beyond the here and now, this earthly lifetime is not even a blip on the radar screen of eternity. And when we have this perspective, no matter what we're experiencing in our lives, and we all could come up with our own list, couldn't we? We are at least in the position where we have the tools we need to rejoice no matter what what are circumstances, which brings us to the fourth evaluation, and that is right loyalty leads to rejoicing. Right loyalty leads to rejoicing. So we talked about the city. We, we come back to the city. Verse 10, for the hand of the Lord will rest, and if you're interested in this, that word rest is Noah, which is a theme that we see being brought forward from the Garden of Eden, where God places Adam in the garden, even in his work, to be able to experience a resting pulse. That God, by his example of what he did on the seventh day, rested. That Lamech, when he named his son Noah, was longing for the rest that God promised in Genesis 3.15. And then the author of Hebrews, after generations of Sabbath days and Sabbath years and Jubilee Years reminds us that true rest, true Noah, is found in an abiding relationship with Christ. He says, for the hand of the Lord will Noah on this mountain. Now, the original audience might have initially thought he was referring to Jerusalem on Mount Zion. But again, he is describing furniture in a dimly lit room. Let me give you some additional illumination to show you that I believe when he says this mountain, he's actually referring to the city of God. Ezekiel 28, 14 describes the Garden of Eden as the mountain of God. Isaiah 65, 11 and Joel 3, 17 describe literal Jerusalem on Mount Zion as the mountain of God. And then Hebrews 12, 22 and Revelation 14, 1 actually describe the new Jerusalem and our eternal dwelling as the mountain or the 
city of God. And I think if you put that all together, it provides light for us to help us understand that the furniture that Isaiah is describing in verse 10 is the city of God where we will dwell with God forever and ever. So in contrast to that is the city of man. And in this case, verse 10 describes Moab. Now, Moab was an ancient city that neighbored Israel. And so why does Isaiah and the Holy Spirit through him single out this nation? I think it's actually illustrated. You can write down Malachi 1, 2 through 5. That often prophets would use a nation or a city as a representation. In Malachi 1, 2 through 5, Malachi uses the nation of Edom another neighboring nation of Israel. And if you study Old Testament history, you realize that Moab and Edom were characterized as nations that would constantly taunt the people of God. And so as the people of God would go through difficulties or as they'd go through persecution or as they would go through judgment, these nations as a pattern would taunt Israel saying, look at the God you serve. Why do you put your faith in that God? And I think what Holy, the Holy Spirit is doing through Isaiah is reminding the original audience that the taunting world system, the city of man, will one day be judged. And what's fascinating is that there is a, a power in the world system. Verse 10 says that Moab will be trampled down in his place. But then verse 11 says that he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. And it, it describes the power of the city of man. The pride of the city of man, like a powerful swimmer cutting through all that life has to offer. It sure looks like it's invincible. Verse 12 describes high fortifications and powerful walls and the very fact that God will bring them low and bring the world system to the ground implies that right now it's high and lofty. So no wonder human beings give their loyalty to the city of man. But I think what Isaiah is once again reminding us is that the hand of the Lord, the power of the Lord, on that day, verse 9, his timing will bring this all to conclusion in perfect agreement with his character, his definition. So here's the final quote as we wrap up. If we will take these four tools that Isaiah 25 has provided for us, it will allow us to look beyond the horizontal categories and context to the vertical lens of God, his character, in his plan for redemptive history. And friends, if, if we will do that, if that's our starting point, no matter how difficult the past, the present, or maybe even the future might be, it can lead to true rejoicing that results in our conquering and enduring, what sounds a lot like Revelation, doesn't it? 